0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.
1: Good morning. Today's scripture is Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 35. If you're using a Bible here in the sanctuary, that's on page 873. And if you'd like a Bible, you may certainly take one home. This is Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 35, page 873. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 22. He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching, and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, And you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last." At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord.
0: Good to see you. How are you? All right. We got our work cut out for us, don't we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you have sent us your son. We thank you that Who he is and what he has said is preserved for us on these pages. Uh, We pray now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be with us richly and fill us, Lord, and enable us not just to have ideas go through our ears and into our minds, but, Lord, that uh, we would be cut to the heart and that um, what you have for us and what you invite us to in this passage would actually take place, Lord, in me and in us and everybody here. Lord, you know everyone here. You know it she or he needs individually, and I pray, Lord, that in your kindness you would just meet every need for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So how did you feel as you listened to this passage? It's intense, isn't it? It's intense. It deals with an intense theme. It's an intense question, and, and there's no doubt it's in the passage Jesus was feeling intensely as he responded to it. So you heard what was asked, right? Lord, will those who are saved be few? So let's think just for a second about the assumptions that are underneath that question. And, and Jesus doesn't disagree with these assumptions. Number one, people need to be saved. There is destruction coming, impending, right? Trouble is coming, and people cannot get out of it on their own. They need someone from outside to come and save them people need to be saved that's in the second some will be saved thankfully mercifully some will be saved but third what's the third one many won't be saved judgment will come it'll hit many won't be saved it's a hard idea isn't it it's heartbreaking it should be heartbreaking Of course, uh, many in our culture today, many in the Western world won't even have this as a valid idea, right? This can't be so. Uh, Many will say it's deeply wrong for Christianity to be narrow like this, exclusive. How dare you say people need to be saved and that your way is the way for people to be saved? You can't say that, they'll say. Why? Well, it sounds um, superior. It sounds judgmental. It sounds prideful. Um, How can you say this? You know, on one hand, I I have a Muslim friend, and um, we've actually kind of happily agreed that it's right for us to try to convert one another. (laughs) We've said that explicitly because we've realized that though it's possible we might both be wrong, it is not possible that we could both be right because we make very, very different claims about God and salvation so we do honor to one another in respecting the other person's claim and so we will admit that uh, if one of us is right the other one will not be saved Now we can still enjoy one another's company because we realize it's God who judges in this way it's not us Um, but you know what most of the Western world can't handle the kind of tolerance We enjoy with one another. They're just not that tolerant. Um, They consider the exclusivity of Christianity to be pridefully narrow, narrow, narrow superior. And sometimes you'll get an illustration like this one. So if you could throw it up for me, it's the famous elephant. Have you seen this one before? The famous illustration. This is what you'll get sometimes when you say, hey, there's only salvation through Jesus Christ. And you get the elephant. Now, what is this all about? Well, the blind scholars are trying to figure out the elephant, and the way the story goes is that's like religions trying to get a grasp on God, okay? So in this version of it, there's six blind scholars out there, right, feeling about for God, and so one guy's got the tail, and what's, what's he think the elephant is like? Oh, it's like a rope, Okay? Well, he's sort of right. That part of the elephant's like a rope, but what's he missing? He doesn't see the rest of the elephant. Okay, another scholar, elephants. he's, he's like a wall. He's got the side of the elephant. Well, he's kind of right. What's the side of an elephant like? It's like a wall, but what's his problem? He doesn't see the whole elephant. And so we go on and on. Another one, he's got the leg. Oh, the elephant's like a tree. Yeah, okay, a leg's like a tree, but you don't see the whole story. You don't see what God is like. And so so the story goes, religions, we claim, hey, God is like this. Well, that's because you don't see the whole picture. You have, you have a, a grasp on truth on this part of God, but that's all you're seeing and all you're feeling. What you don't realize is you don't see the whole thing. And so the story, what's the, what's the moral of the story? Um, you don't really see that all, lo- all roads lead to God. And you just have a little piece of it, and so it is narrow and wrong of you, as the story goes, to say your way is the only way. It's, it's narrow. It's uh, exclusive. It's superiority. You need to realize all religions are going to make it. Huh. What are you going to say when you get something like this? What's your response when you get something like this? When you, when you really believe, when you think Jesus is the only way to God... Uh, when you think the Bible speaks that way. What are you going to say when they say, well, you've just got your hands on the one little picture and you don't understand everything else that's out there. And then you say, well, well, the Bible says this. And they go, yeah, that's nice, but you're just feeling the the tusk. You don't see the whole elephant. Well, you've got to remember, okay, there's a seventh scholar in this illustration. There's the seventh. Now, you look at that picture up there, there's six, right? There's a seventh, you just can't see him. Where is that seventh scholar hiding? He's the one telling you the story. He's the one telling you the story. Because he's saying, oh, Islam doesn't see, Christianity doesn't see, whatever doesn't see, whatever doesn't see. But what's inferred as he gives you this little illustration of the elephant? Who's the one that sees? I do. I can see the whole elephant. He says, I'm the one who sees that your knowledge is incomplete. And it's also assumed that I'm the one with the true picture of God. So it's, it's interesting, isn't it, to hear kind of an illustration from modern culture. They're kind of doing what they're telling us not to do. What are we saying as Christians? Well, we, we think we found the way. We think we've found salvation. This is the way, and they say, "Oh, you can't say that. You just have part of the way." But implicit in saying it's wrong for you to say you have the way, he's saying, "I have the way." Okay, you don't see, and then what's he saying? I see. So when you get when you get baggage from the culture about claiming uh, Christians being exclusive, um. You realize here, all truth is somewhat exclusive. Okay? All truth is somewhat narrow. Okay? Circles don't have corners. Are you being prideful in saying that? They just don't. Okay? Truth is narrow, it's exclusive. The question is not whether or not there is truth to be claimed, to be believed. The question, of course, is. What is truth? What is truth? And so at Fountain of Life, what we're trying to do pretty much every week is we try to listen to Jesus. He's won our trust on truth. Wouldn't you say he's the most loving, most compelling, most powerful man the world has ever seen? There's nobody like Jesus. Luke has given us good reason to believe Jesus is the very son of God. And so we want to believe what he says, not because we want to be superior. No, no, no. Not because we think truth comes from me or from you. No, no, no. What are we saying? Truth comes from him. And we want to submit ourselves to his truth. I mean, of all the people in the history of the world, who do you think should have a voice when it comes to salvation and who gets saved or not? How about the one who predicted his death and resurrection and then accomplished it? So we listen to him. When he speaks about salvation, he knows and we should listen. So in this passage, Jesus is describing who will be saved. And he's going to use the illustration of a door leading to a feast. That's what salvation is like for him in this passage. A door leading to a feast. And so I'm going to take the passage like this. I think it makes the most sense for me to understand it. I worked hard on this passage this week. I hope it'll make the most sense for you to understand it. First of all, I wanna have a brief look through the door of salvation. A brief look through the door. Look into it, what's he talking about? Second, we're gonna be warned by the closing of the door. That's a warning, the door closes. So we're gonna be warned by it. Third, we're gonna see and appreciate the open door that is there. See the open door. And then fourth, we wanna enter the narrow door, okay? Look through the door, warned by the closing door, see the open door, enter the narrow door. So first, a look through the door. You see in verse 29, Jesus says, People will come from east and west, from north and south, and what? Recline at table in the kingdom of God. So what's a picture of salvation Jesus gives? A feast. I kind of like that. Do you kind of like that? All the people you know and love hanging with God himself, feasting. I don't know, what do y'all do for fun? Kind of like this, right? Let's get the people together. Let's feast. Jesus says it's like this. And as usual in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is echoing themes from the prophet Isaiah. The themes from the prophet Isaiah. Luke loves to quote Isaiah. Jesus quotes Isaiah. And this echoes this idea from Isaiah 26. I just want you to see it real quick. Isaiah 26 6 through 9. There the prophet says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a what? A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. Okay, God's not getting you del taco. You may get it today, that's fine. But when you get saved, it's going to be better than that. Verse 7. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over the nations. It's the darkness, the lostness. Look at verse eight. He will swallow up what? Death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's what salvation's like. You want to go? You want to hang with me there? I want to go. I want to sit at that table. I want to have that veil taken off. I want to have the tear wiped away. I want the curse removed. I want the healing. Let's go. Let's go sit there together. That's what salvation is, to be there in that place. But there's another option. Back to Luke 13. Look at verse 27. He will say to some people, verse 27, he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the peoples in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Option one, you're at that feast. Option two is terrible. Did you see what it's like? Number one, you're cast out, rejected. No, no, you can't come. You're cast out. Number two, what's highlighted? Why couldn't these folks come in? Depart from me, all you workers of evil. So the thing that defines you is the evil you have done and the good you have not done. That's what you're wearing in that moment. That's how you're recognized. Your life has been judged. Number three, it's a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know what to say about that other than it's anguish. It is deep sorrow and anger and despair. It is horrid. I kept looking in this text for a long time for like a third place. Anybody hoping for that? Is there a third place, like a middle ground place? Like I'll just chill over here place? Maybe I can't make the feast, but I don't want to gnash my teeth. Is there like a, you know... A compromise, a great on the curve kind of thing, it's not there. There's two places there's the feast and there's the gnash your teeth. Why does he bring this up? Is he being mean? Is he being honest? What's it supposed to motivate in you? You want to get through that door? You want to sit at that feast? A big, this is a big question, right? If this is true, if Jesus is trustworthy, how big is it that you make it through the door into the feast? Have you ever had a more serious or important consideration in your entire life than this? And this is it. If you get one thing right, get through the door, get into the feast. And that's really what Jesus says at the beginning of this passage. So back in verse 22, he's going on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. That's where he was, that's, he's been on his way to Jerusalem since chapter 9. In verse 23, someone drops this question on him. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Will those who are saved be few? And it's very interesting what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, don't sweat it. Nobody needs to be saved. Is that what he said? Nope. He doesn't say, don't sweat it, everybody's going to be saved. Is that what he said? No. And in fact, he didn't really answer the question. He didn't go, well, you're looking at a 10 to 1 ratio. <laughs> saved or not saved. Really? Yeah. It doesn't say that. He redirects his answer to give you what's most important. The guy asks, are, are those are going to be saved? Be few. And it's a singular person asking. And Jesus, look who he answers. Who does he answer? It's the end of verse 23. And he said to them, one person asks, he tells everybody. And it's one word in verse 24. What's that word? Strive to enter. Strive to enter. It kind of goes like this. Lord, how many are going to be saved? And Jesus says, you better make sure you're saved. Lord, are those people over there going to get saved? How many of them? Are you going to be saved? Strive to enter the door. You better grab onto this and make it your life's mission that you end up at that feast. Strive. Get through the door. So you see what we're talking about, right? We're looking through the door. We're seeing this feast versus gnashing your teeth, and we see Jesus' strong, intense push, pleading with you, strive to enter the, through the door. Make sure you're in. Now we're going to look at the warning we get from the closing of the door. Verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, well, then it's over. What's the issue here? As Jesus speaks, is the door open or shut? It's open. It's open. What he's saying is that one day, the door will be shut. So it's an issue of timing. It's an issue of timing. Timing. The door was open, but it will close. Those who didn't get in wouldn't strive while they had the opportunity. And so they started to seek. When did they start to seek in this parable? When the door was shut. It's too late. It's too late. Let's walk through Jesus' parable, try to learn what's going on. So the door shuts, the master shuts the door, you can't come into the feast. And they say, what do they say? Lord, open to us. And what's the master's answer? I don't know where you come from. What does that mean? Is, the, uh, is this mic a little hot? Okay. Thank you. Maybe it's the text. The text is hot, right? What do they say? They say, Lord, open to us. And he answers... I don't know where you come from. What does that mean? Is he like kind of foolish? He doesn't know what's going on? No. What does it mean? You're not my people. You're strangers to me. Um, You think of your living room and you're having a feast with your people and uh, known criminals come to knock on the door and you're like, no, I don't know where you're from. You're not my people. You can't come in. Then look what they say in verse 26. You'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you're from. We saw you and heard you speak, Jesus. I don't know you. We have no relationship. Depart from me. And again, what does he call them? Workers of evil. What's going on? What's going on? What are we supposed to do with this? Um, who's Jesus' audience? That's always important to remember. Who's Jesus' audience? Religious Jews. Religious Jews. Uh, they, say, they say they believe the prophets. They say they're waiting for the Messiah. Right? That's, that's his audience. And what happened? How is it that they didn't get through the door while there was time? And that's what we want to work through now because that's the nature of the warning. If we don't, if we don't understand this, we don't, we don't get what the warning is saying. So here's what I want to tell you. While some people were striving, and we'll get to who they are, some people were striving, many were presuming. Do you know what presume means? Take something for granted without actually testing it. You ever presumed that you were ready for the test? You didn't quite do the homework you were supposed to do? As for people with personalities like mine, some of you were like, I would never, ever do that. Uh, but I would. <laughs> I presumed I was ready and then have found, oh, I was not. I was not ready for that one. Presuming. So I'm telling you that many, instead of striving, were presuming. Think with me. Who did Jesus describe as being at this feast in the kingdom? Did you see who it was? Three major groups of people. Who was it? Abraham and his descendants. Did you notice that? The prophets and pagan Gentiles. It's very intentional that Jesus chooses who he chooses in this parable. Abraham and his descendants, the prophets, and pagan Gentiles. Hmm. You know, when the prophet John came at the beginning of Luke, he had to to warn the people continually about this one mistake that they make. Look what he said in Luke 3, verse 8. Luke 3, verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, what? We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Hmm. What were they tempted to rely upon for their confidence that they were going to be saved? We're Jews. Abraham's my great, great, great. I'm in. God liked Abraham. True. Abraham's going to have lots of children. True. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. <laughs> I am one of them. Right arm, right? They presumed. John says, don't you dare think for a minute that belonging to a social group is enough to get you into the feast. You better bear fruit. It better be seen in your life that you love god and want to follow him so when jesus points out abraham isaac and jacob they're there but you better strive to enter he's saying to them don't rely on your jewishness now does that preach today does that preach to us Are we ever tempted to presume that we'll enjoy salvation because we've been connected to a certain social group? I've asked people before, why do you think you're going to go to heaven? And what do they say? I've been to church. People going to heaven go to church, but not everybody who goes to church goes to heaven. Or people will say, Hey, I belong to a certain denomination. If that's all you have, the door will be shut. Or how about just being a nice, generous American? God country, right? That'll get you through the door. No, it won't. Belonging to a certain social group will not get you into the feast. We need to wear that, Right? What do you rely upon? Don't rely upon that. There's another thing they relied upon in this passage. The prophets were at the feast as well, right? Who are they? Well, basically, they're preachers of the Old Testament applying God's word from the Torah, taking the first five books of the Bible and applying it to the people. Hey, remember your covenant with God? Let's live it. Don't give it lip service. Believe it. Trust it. Live it. Obey it. Live it. And what would Israel say, what would any good Israelite say about his relationship to the prophets? What would they say? I believe the prophets. Right? That's what they'd say. Every one of them. And the prophets will be at the feast. Look what Jesus says about Jerusalem down in verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that what? Kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jesus is saying, you claim to love God and his word, but when it comes down to you actually believing and obeying the content of the word, you reject it. Look what they say back in the parable in 26. Then you'll begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. So these people, they saw Jesus there. They heard his words. But Jesus says to them, Depart from me, you workers of evil. They heard the truth, they didn't respond to it. They heard the prophets, they didn't believe it. They're presuming on their salvation. Relying on religious proximity. They're relying on religious proximity and thinking they will be saved. And Jesus says, no, no. It's not just hearing the prophets. It's believing them and doing what it says. Right? Right? How do we do this? We do this when we think we're saved based only on a prayer we prayed back in 84. I don't want to demean the prayer. That might have been the prayer that started all and changed your life. But if it did, there'll be a whole bunch of fruit since then. Right? I walked up. I walked up to the stage. pastor said, come up. I did that. I'm I'm good, right? That's it. I'm saved. Don't rely on religious proximity. What about this? I went to Christian school. How about this? My Reformed theology is sharp as a knife. I can quote Bible verses. So what? It will not save you. Don't rely on religious proximity. Here's their ultimate, prophet, or their ultimate problem. It's not that God is ungenerous. It's not that God's like, I'm not letting anyone in. I'm gonna make the door as small as possible. That's not what's happening. It's not that God is ungenerous. Look at verse 29 again. Who's there again, the third group at this feast? You got Abraham, and his descendants, you got the prophets. Who else is there? Verse 29 People will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. All kinds of people are gonna be there. And as you read through Luke, who are some of these colorful characters? A couple weeks, we're gonna see Jesus eat with Zacchaeus. Since we're singing Sunday school songs today, right? The wee little man. A wee little man was he. Right? Well, what else do you know about him other than that he was short? He was a tax collector. He stole from people, he ruined people's lives. He was a traitor, he was a sellout. And Jesus ate with him. And it changed his life. He's gonna be in the kingdom. Remember the prostitute from. Wherever, whenever we looked at that text, washing Jesus' feet. She's going to be there. She's going to be there. All sorts of people are going to be there. The poor, the outcasts, the broken, sinners, tax collectors, they're all going to be there. The problem is not that God is ungen- ungenerous. Here's the problem. Look down at verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And what? You didn't want it. You weren't willing. A couple things to notice here. Anytime uh, in biblical language when you get a repeated, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Uh, Didn't Jesus do it with Martha? Martha, Martha. That always means love and compassion. It, it means hurt. It means sorrow. Uh, oh, Jerusalem. He's hurt as he says it. The city that's known for being hypocrites. Oh, kids. How often? I wanted you, I've, I wanted you to come. And here, by the way, this is Jesus' claim to be God. Because he's talking about all of God's work with Israel over the centuries. And he's like, that was me. How often I would have gathered you together, and it's just a, an idiom of the time, a hen taking care of her, her little chicks. Come and come and hide under my wings. He's saying, I wanted, I wanted to care for you and provide for you and give you everything that you ever wanted. I wanted to be everything you need. I, I wanted that for you. You didn't want it. You didn't want it. It's so interesting. Because you can rely on a certain kind of social group, a, a Christian social group and in the end not really want Jesus you can have religious proximity and no biblical truth and go to Christian school and lead stuff and not really want Jesus they had these two things and they presumed upon them but the one thing they really needed to want Jesus at any cost. That's what they didn't have. That's what they didn't have. And I was just thinking, going through this text, maybe there's somebody who needs to hear this question. What if, what if he was here, and instead of saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, what if he came, what if he said your name? Oh, I'll use my own. Oh, Matt, Matt, how often I've wanted to gather you. What did he say of me? But but he didn't want it. Is that any of us today? So you really have to look here, don't you, at the warning of the closed door. Are you going to go to the feast? Why? Why? Don't say, I went to Fountain of Life a couple times. Don't say, I've got theological lists in order. Both of those things are really important, by the way. I'm not telling you not to come back next week. I'm not telling you not to know what you believe. They're hugely important, but don't rely on them. The core thing is, have you run to Jesus? Have you said, hide me, I'm yours. I want to live for you, I trust you. Let's look now at the open door. Verse 31, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. By the way, I almost never hear these two passages taught together, but I think they have to go together. Verse 31, what did Luke say? At that very hour. So these are connected. So some Pharisees come to Jesus. It's pretty curious what they say. What are they telling him to do? You should leave because Herod, the little mini king of Israel, he wants to kill you. So some of us are confused. Hey, wait, I thought the Pharisees wanted to kill him. They might be into this. You know, I'm going to disappoint all of you. I'm not going to take the time to get into the theoretical motives of the Pharisees. (laughs) Sorry. Send me an email. I'll send you the theories. Okay. The point is, they say, you should leave or you're going to die. Herod's going to kill you. What is Jesus' response? Verse 32. He said to them, go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, third day. I'm going to finish my course. What does that mean? We say somebody's a fox and we mean they look good in uh, a slinky dress or something. I don't know. That is not what Jesus meant. (laughs) Fox here means something like conniving, clever, but also powerless. It's not a lion. It's a fox. He's got his plans, but his bark is bigger than his bite. And here's how we know Jesus means that. Uh, Is Jesus going to change his plans because Herod's around? Or is he saying, no, I know my road, I'm walking it. So Jesus is gonna leave, because he's itinerant, he's on the way towards Jerusalem. But he's not leaving because he's worried about Herod. He's leaving because he's on his own schedule. He's got his own road to walk, he knows exactly what it is, and he's gonna do it intentionally. I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Now, what does that mean? Because he's not going to be in Jerusalem in three days from now. You probably have a haunting suspicion. You've Been a Christian for 30 seconds, and third day you go, you know. Luke 9, 22. Luke 9, 22. Jesus told us already. Luke 9, 22. Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and what? On the third day, be raised. What's so wonderful is the Pharisees say, hey, you better leave, Herod's going to kill you. And Jesus says, I am going to be killed. But that's why I'm here. I'm not running from my death. I'm walking right into my death. And I will finish my course when I rise from the dead. Wow. Is Herod going to take Jesus' life in the end? Is Pilate going to take Jesus' life in the end? Is the Roman soldier going to take Jesus' life in the end? Look at John 10. I love this verse. John 10, 17. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, I have authority to take it up again. Isn't that great? Jesus gave up his own life. Why? Well, we know, but do we know? Do you want to hear it again? I'm going to tell you again. Why did he lay down his life? Folks, listen. Remember the people at the door? Knocking at the door when it's closed? Go away. I don't know you. You're workers of evil. And Jesus Laid down his life for workers of evil. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live. He died for our sins to cleanse us, to earn our forgiving, our forgiveness for our evil doing. Not only that, the more and more you look into what Jesus has done, you see he died to earn your adoption, so that you might be children of God. That door to the feast. That's the door into your father's living room. If you're in Christ, he'll never say, go away from me, I don't know you. He'll say, ah, my daughter, my son, come on in. I have a seat with your name on it. This is from the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us. He is salvation. Look what Jesus also says in John 10 verse 9. John 10, verse 9, I am the what? I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, what are the next four words? He might be saved, here's hoping. He might be saved, I'm doing my best. Oh no, he will be saved. This is the door right here. This is the door right here i got a hard part for you coming up here, coming up next. I wasn't sure how much time to spend on this. It's kind of interesting for playing Bible trivia. But really, I just want to land on the main point. Look what he says down in verse 35. Behold, your house is forsaken. Who's he talking to there? He's just talked to Jerusalem. He's talked to Israel, the priests, the uh, religious institution of Judaism there. Your house is forsaken because they've rejected him, the true Jewish Messiah. Your house is forsaken. What does it mean, forsaken? Rejected. Abandoned. Left. The door is shut right here. Your house is forsaken. Did that happen? Has has Judaism been forsaken? What happened in AD 70? Just as Jesus predicted. The Romans came in and just wiped the place out. It is not even physically possible to engage in Old Testament worship today. It's over. But look at the next line. I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Couple things to plug in. He's quoting from Psalm 118 here. And if you read that Psalm, in context, those are people genuinely worshiping the messiah that was rejected but is now vindicated that is exactly what that text is about they are worshiping the messiah who was rejected but is now vindicated and so you think well when did this happen and you might guess if you if you're familiar with this with the gospels you might think oh it's palm sunday isn't that what they said at palm sunday it looks good at first but i don't think it works Because the the ones in Luke saying this on Palm Sunday are his disciples. And in Luke 13, who's Jesus talking to? Israel at large, Jerusalem. Moreover, for the main crowds, do they really keep their message? Hey, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What are they all screaming like a couple days later? Crucify him. That that can't be the fulfillment here. Because he means there's one day you're going to see me and you're going to say this. And you're going to mean it. You're going to worship. If you want to do some homework through Romans 11. And you will see that though, even today, most ethnic Jews don't want anything to do with Jesus. There's this promise in Romans 11 that one day, I think, right before Jesus comes, a vast majority of Jewish folks will trust Jesus Christ and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Look at Romans 11:25. 25. Paul writes this. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon who? Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It has to be ethnic Israel because he's talking about Gentiles. Verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. What's going to happen? The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I... Take away their sins. Here's, I think, the main point. Jesus is definitely talking about judgment now, isn't he? Closed doors, abandoned, forsaken house. But then he says, but one day you'll see, and you'll say it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One day, I mean, all this time my wings are out, I'm calling you in, you're not willing. But one day. Because I'm going to finish my course, you will come. And that is the point here. Just as surely as Jesus finishes his course, his people will finish theirs. If Jesus saves you, he will save you. He will keep you. He will hold you. Don't we know this from other places biblically? Philippians 1.6. Paul writes, I'm sure of this that he who, what, began a good work in you, what's he gonna do? He will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. How many of you have clung to that one before? Okay, he's not gonna quit, he's gonna save you. Jesus finished his course, he lived for you, he died for you, he rose for you, he's brought you in, he will bring you through the open door. He's not gonna just forgive you of some sins now when you pray the prayer and never never let you make it to heaven. If he has saved you ever, he will save you always. He is the door. Is it narrow for me to say that? Uh, Let's just just be real honest, right? Can you get into the feast without faith in Jesus Christ? No. Am I being prideful and judgmental in saying that? Well, only the Lord knows my heart. But here's the point. I I just want to ask questions like this. Who else on God's green earth has lived a perfect life? Does any other prophet from any other religion even claim that? And when you look at their lives, is there even sort of a reason to believe it? Zero. Zero. Who could ever be both God and man to where he could represent humanity and pay for our sins and yet be divine and pay for every sin. Who could do that? Ever. There's no one. Who said, I'm going to die for sins and rise on the third day, watch this, and then did it? Who else is there? Who else can fulfill every one of God's promises about him in the Old Testament? Who else is there? Paul says in Timothy, there's only one mediator between God and man. There's only one possibility. To do what we need to be to do to be saved. There's only one. There's only one. And his name is Jesus. That's the open door. Somebody needs to give me an amen right there, because you know, that's come on, that's good, right? He's the open door. Why then is he narrow? Because who called it the narrow door? He did. Strive to enter the narrow door. Well, it is a parable, right? I don't think there's actually a size of a door, and you're kind of like, you know, trying to get in for heaven. It's a parable. There's something about it in some way that makes it hard to fit into. You could look at it like this if you want to think like size. The people who aren't getting in want to hold on to Belonging to a social group as the way they get saved. And they want to hold on to religious proximity without obedience as a way to get saved. They want to hold on to their own authority, not submitting to Jesus as their Lord and only Savior. They want to hold in- on to it. And as they try to fit in through the door of Christ alone, it's too narrow. And the only way you could walk in to adore this narrow is to drop reliance on a social group and to drop reliance on religious proximity and to drop being your own authority and doing what you want despite what scripture says and walk in wholly submitted to Christ alone. Then you'll fit. I mean, the door is not narrow because of lack of his love, right? The door is not narrow because of lack of the power of what he did on the cross. The door is narrow because most people would rather presume on salvation than strive. Let's look at the narrow door now. What's the word he said? What's that word? Strive. I'm going to give you Greek here, not because I'm a Greek scholar, but because you're going to recognize the word. In Greek, it's agonizomai. Agonizomai, agonize. That's what it is. Agonize. There's another place it's used, and it's used lots of places in the New Testament. But Second Timothy two five, I think this might help. Paul there writes, "An athlete is not crowned unless he strives, competes, agonizomai according to the rules. You don't win unless you run." You don't finish unless you keep going. You don't get a reward unless you play by the rules. It's action, it's intentionality, it's going after it. I put up just like a broad swath of definitions for you. To strive it's to enter a contest or contend in the games. It's to contend with adversaries. It's to fight. To struggle with difficulties and dangers, it's to endeavor with strenuous zeal, to strive to obtain something, to want something, to go for it. And what is Jesus? What's the word Jesus uses here for for those who will enter the door? Strive, strive. I want to ask you a question. Take the time to do it. Some of you might be thinking, right? Hey, wait! Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 11, "Come to me, all you who are weary"? and I will give you what, remember? Rest? And now he's telling me to agonize? Which one is it? Uh, And I don't know, so let's just, uh, I'm kidding. (laughs) It's not strive or rest, it's strive to rest. It's not strive or rest. It's strive to rest. Because Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. And the people who don't make it through the narrow door are saying, no, I won't go to you. I'm going to find my rest somewhere else. Strive, Jesus says, to rest in me. The problem is not his sufficiency. It's your trust in his sufficiency. Strive to rest in me. Strive to trust me, to follow me, to obey me, to look at what I've done, to trust my love, to believe me, to take up your cross and follow me. Real faith will strive like this. Is Jesus talking about salvation by works here? Not a chance, right? Not a chance. Tax collectors, prostitutes, centurions are going to eat at the feast. It's not because they had this perfect life. No way. But they had faith in the one who had the perfect life, and they followed him. We know this from other places, right? Back to Philippians again. Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, what does Paul tell believers to do? Work out your own salvation. With what? Fear and trembling. Agonize. Go after it. Fight your sin. Pursue. Try to obey. Trust. Believe. Worship. Praise. Love. All that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Verse 13. For it's God who works in you. He's there. He's working both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's going to get you through the door. He's going to get you through the door. I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton. Suck on this just for a moment. Listen to what he said. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. In other words, if you really know Christ and trust him, people who know that, he's what they need. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found what? Difficult and left untried. You're not enough, Jesus, for me to follow you or keep your commands in this situation. I think now we can figure out what Jesus meant by Luke 13.30. Behold, some who are last will be first, some who are first will be last. It's a theme all throughout Luke, isn't it? The Pharisees and the chief priests and the kings and the synagogue leaders, they look religious. They're children of Abraham. They have religious proximity. And what's their response to Jesus? No, thank you. They looked first, but what will they be? Last. And then the centurion, the tax collector, the the bent-over woman, the leper, the blind, the prostitute. They were last. And yet they trusted Jesus. They came under his wings. And now what will they be at the feast? First. They'll be first. The religious presumed. The sinners strove. Is that right? Tense-wise? Strived? Striven? Striven? Strove. Which one will we be? Don't presume. Strive. Not to earn your salvation. I don't believe that. It's not possible. Jesus earned it. But strive to trust him. Strive to see him. Strive to believe him. Strive to rest in him. Strive to obey him, and the door will be open. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's a hard text. It's not just hard because of the, the big picture of judgment, heaven, hell, but it's hard for our hearts. We've all rested on things other than you for our identity, for our pleasure. We've all made excuses for why it's a good reason to not obey you. So I just pray that this word would sink home, that um, we would strive, Lord, to be yours, to know you, to follow you, to trust you, to obey you. Lord, that even when the Christian life is found difficult, we would taste that it's not found wanting, but that you are enough. Um, We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the the power of your salvation, and for the open invitation to all the world uh, to believe in you, to be saved. And we pray that we would continue to strive to show that we are of that number, those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship, For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.